Praise the Lord. This is Phil Del Rey bringing you a message entitled, Putting on the Full Armor of God, How to Kick the Sin Habit by Taking Control of Your Thought Life. You know, our world is exploding with information and new technological and scientific discoveries. Every couple of years, our knowledge is literally doubling, and the internet plays a major role in the dissemination of information. I'm reminded of something that Daniel the prophet said, that one of the signs of the latter days would be an explosion of knowledge. You can spend your life learning, but in reality, only one thing is needful, and that is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, the Bible says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, Paul is praying that God might give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened that you might know the true hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he, that is God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Paul speaks of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection in the book of Philippians as well. What is this power of the resurrection that Paul is speaking of? It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead, as we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. And it, it appears from that text that it's as if all the hosts of evil were determined to keep Jesus in the tomb. But God's mighty power defeated this infernal army by raising Christ from the dead. And that same power is placed at the disposal of all believers, according to Ephesians 1.19, and it is appropriated by faith. The power that I am speaking of is the power to live a victorious Christian life, to live victorious over sin. In 1 Timothy 6.16, the word says that God gives life to all things, he alone possesses immortality, and he dwells in unapproachable light. What an incredible thought, that God dwells in unapproachable light. 1 John 1.5 says that God himself, he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. These are not only real truths, but metaphors. Light and darkness are metaphors for good and evil. 
Nothing impure or unclean can stand in the presence of God. According to Isaiah 59, <clears throat> sin is what separates us from God. Therefore, knowing what sin is, is one of the greatest things you could ever know. God hates sin. Sin results in death. And the fact of the matter is that when an unbeliever stands before God on Judgment Day, he will be charged with murder. He will be charged with murdering the Son of the living God. It was our sins that nailed Christ to the cross. We all participated in the murdering of Jesus Christ. While that is true, the reason I'm telling you that is because I want you to understand the depravity of sin, just how sinful sin really is, and how much God hates it. We must learn to love only God and hate only sin. Matthew 1.21 says that it is sin that Jesus came to save us from. That's an incredible thought. He didn't come to save us from hell. He came to save us from sin. If he saves you from sin, then he saves you from hell. But the idea that he came to save us from sin is here and now. Romans 3.23 says, We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The glory meaning his perfect standard of righteousness and holiness. We are all sinners by nature. That is, we were born sinners. We inherited the sin nature from our father, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're all sinners by nature, and we're all sinners by choice. There is the sin of commission, that is, sins that we commit. And there's also such a thing as the sin of omission. Those are the things that we should have done that we didn't do. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. <clears throat> what is sin and where did it come from? 1 John 3.4 I'm taking this verse from the King James translation. 1 John 3, 4 says, Sin is the transgression of the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. And if you're not sure of that, take a good look at Matthew chapter 19. Take a look at Romans 3.20, 3.31, Romans 7.7, 7, Romans 7, 12 through 14, Galatians 3, 24, and many other verses. What is sin? It's the transgression of the law. Where did it come from? The first sin in the universe began when Lucifer, the most created of the perfect, the most beautiful of the angels, perfect in beauty and full of wisdom, it says, became discontented with his position and wanted to usurp the authority of God. Five times Lucifer said, I will exalt myself above the throne of God. That is the essence of sin. Whenever we sin willfully, knowingly, 
We are doing, in essence, what Lucifer did, and we want to exalt ourself above God. Hopefully that helps you understand why God hates sin. Nobody has the right to exalt himself or his will above the will of God. <clears throat> sin began with Lucifer, and on this planet with man it began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve did essentially the same thing that Lucifer did and wanted to be like God. So how do we kick the sin habit? Principle number one. Deliverance from the guilt, the power, and the condemnation of sin is a work of grace. A work of grace is something that Christ does in you and through you. Paradoxically, your part must be factored in. Now let me back up just for a minute. I said deliverance from sin is a work of grace. It's deliverance from the guilt that is the past effect of sin, deliverance from the power here and now in the present, and from the condemnation of sin. The condemnation of sin is what unbelievers will receive when they stand before the great white throne judgment and are finally condemned for unbelief and for murder. So Christ wants to deliver us from the past, the present, and the future effects of sin. It's also crucial that you understand that one of the things that separates Christianity from all other so-called religions is the fact that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. Our good works, our changed attitudes and habits are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. The idea that Christ died on the cross to pay for our sin is an incredible thing to contemplate. Matthew 1.21 says, They shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. That name in our English translation, Jesus, in the original Hebrew was actually Yeshua, which literally means God is salvation. Grace was personified when Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, grace put on flesh and bones. In Titus 2.11, the Word of God says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. Grace teaches you to say no to ungodliness and worldly lusts. 
Grace is one of the most beautiful truths that has ever been presented to the mind of man. The word grace from the Greek is charis. It not only means unmerited favor. In other words, a blessing and a gift that is not earned. It's a gift. But it also means the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection in the life, including gratitude. In other words, grace is God's influence upon your heart to love and want to obey him. The word charis also means goodwill, loving kindness, favor, it's used of the merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon the souls of men, turns them to Christ, keeps them in Christ, strengthens them in Christ, increases them in Christ, and in knowledge, affection, and kindles in them the exercise of Christian virtue or moral excellence. Grace is the spiritual condition of one who is governed by the power of God and His divine grace. Grace is the spiritual condition of one who is governed or ruled by the power of divine grace. In John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. When Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches, apart from me you can do nothing. Friend, he is saying, you draw your life from Christ. Friend, it wasn't the nails that held Christ to the cross. It was his love for you and for me. In Romans 2.4, the apostle says, Do you not, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? So again, principle number one, deliverance from the guilt the power and the condemnation of sin is a work of grace. It's something that God does in you and through you. Principle number two is the paradox. While deliverance from sin is a work of grace, paradoxically, your part must be factored in. Nobody makes you sin. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, we learn that the fruit of the Holy Spirit, one of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit in your life, one of the genuine marks of a work of the Holy Spirit in a man's life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's another paradox. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is self-control. How do we learn to control ourselves? 
In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, the apostle talks about putting on the armor of God every day. Friend, we need to put on the armor of God every day because you have three primary enemies that would like to keep you in bondage and out of heaven. Your three enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The fashion of the world is against you walking with Jesus Christ. Your own flesh will fight you until the day you die. I'm reminded of D.L. Moody who said, the, the, the one man who's caused me more trouble than any other is D.L. Moody. We are our own worst enemy. Your own flesh will cry out for sin and lust. The world is against you, your own flesh is against you, and the devil himself wants to steal, kill, and destroy you if he can. The world and the flesh and the devil are against you, but have peace, my friend, because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are for you, and those who are with us are far more than those who are against us. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites came into the Promised Land, while God promised them the land, they also found out that they would have to fight their enemies in order to take possession of what God had promised them. It's almost like another paradox. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 7, God tells Joshua, Be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. God, in other words, is going to empower Joshua to win the battles that he faces. The contingency is that he must obey God's word. He must obey the Lord. He must not turn to the right or to the left. And the promise is that he would prosper wherever he went. God promised them victory if they would obey his commands. And his commandments are not burdensome. They would be defeated if they did not follow God's commandments. So what is your part? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. 
how to use the armor in spiritual warfare begins in verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is how you are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You put on the belt of truth every morning. Paul was thinking of the Roman soldier as he used this illustration. The Roman soldier's foundational piece of equipment was the belt, which held the breastplate and which held on his sword. The first thing he had to put on was the belt. And you must decide every morning when you get out of bed, you are going to wear the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. It is fascinating that this spiritual armor of Ephesians 6 is also the same armor that Jesus wears when he returns to this planet in power and in glory. In Isaiah 59:17, it says, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. The belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. In John 8.32, Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the belt of truth that you must put on. Truth and righteousness are the foundation of God's throne. Psalm 89.14 Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. God's throne can never be toppled. It can never be overthrown. God's kingdom will endure forever and ever without end because the foundation of his throne is righteousness and justice, loving kindness and truth. The foundation of your life must be truth. When he speaks of the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about character. Behavior is how you act in public. Character is what you are when no one is looking. Second Peter chapter 1 says, Add to your faith virtue, or moral excellence, and to virtue, knowledge. So, before we are even to add knowledge to our faith, Peter tells us that the first thing you add to your faith is moral excellence. Friend, please commit Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 and 9 to memory. It says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, 
if there is anything praiseworthy, let your mind dwell on these things and the promises that the God of peace will be with you. Friend, it begins in your mind. Sin begins in your mind and you must run everything you are thinking through the grid of Philippians 4.8. If what you are thinking is not true, if it's not noble, if it isn't just, if it isn't pure, if it isn't lovely, if it's not a good report, if it's not something you'd want to share with Jesus, if it's not virtuous, if it's not morally excellent, if it's not worthy of praise before God, then you have no business entertaining that thought in your mind. This is where victory begins, in the spirit of your mind. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? In the Old Testament, the physical temple was divided into three distinct sections, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. If you are the now the temple of God, then I believe your body represents the outer court, your mind represents the inner court, which the inner court was reserved only for Jewish believers, and your heart would be the Holy of Holies. We are told to guard our hearts. Inside the Holy of Holies, nothing impure or unclean could enter because God himself appeared in the Holy of Holies. In Psalm 119.11, the psalmist said, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Joshua 1.8, God said to Joshua to guarantee good success, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Friend, there's no getting around it. The better you know the Word of God, and by the way, it's not how much you know, it's how much you apply that counts. So, the better you know and apply the Word of God, the better you know the God of the Word. How does knowing the Word of God help me? Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, sharper than any other weapon, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God says his word is alive. Whether it's his spoken word, such as in Genesis when God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Whether it is the written word of God or the spoken word of God, it is still the word of God and his power has never and will never diminish. His word is alive and it is so powerful. It is sharper, in other words, more effectual, more effective, 
than any two-edged sword. What does a sword do? A sword separates things. In the hands of a surgeon, it can mean healing. In the hands of a warrior, it can bring death. It separates disease from healthy cells, and it separates life from death. There is no sword, there is no weapon, nothing is more effectual at separating than the word of the living God. And God wants to separate you from your sin. God wants to deliver you from the guilt and the power of sin. One of the ways that God's word works and produces this new life in you is by giving you spiritual eyesight. It produces in you the ability to see things in light of eternity. Most people can't see past the immediate, and they only live for the, this day. Their gods are their bellies. They live to satisfy their five senses, and they have no concept of eternal life. But God has put eternity in your heart. In Hebrews 4.13, God says there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friend, you may think you're getting away with something, but I guarantee you there's at least one other person who knows. And to realize that there is no way you can hide from God, not a thought, when God's Word says that it is able to discern between the thoughts and the intents of the heart, God only knows, God not only knows what you're thinking and what you're doing, but He knows why you're thinking it. He knows your thoughts and your motives. To realize that we will stand before God and give an accounting to Him of everything we have ever said, everything we have ever done, and every thought we have entertained is very sobering. So we must live in light of that fact. Who would commit a crime with a policeman standing right next to him? God sees all. God knows all. How do we get delivered? It's a work of grace. Verse 16, Hebrews chapter 4, still, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Deliverance from sin is a work of grace, and paradoxically, our part must be factored in. Let's go back to our part. James 1.14 Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when temptation conceives, it brings forth death. Friends, the, 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 the victory is one right here. To be tempted is not a sin. Jesus was tempted, it says, by the devil in Matthew chapter 4, but he committed no sin. When you realize that you are entertaining a sinful thought, 
what James is saying here, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed. Carried away, he means in your imagination, being carried away in your mind. You're tempted to sin, so you begin to think about it and imagine it and then carry it out in your own mind. Friend, when you realize you're being tempted to sin, that is the opportunity to go to the to, to the throne of grace, to find grace to help you in your time of need. When you are tempted to sin, that is the opportunity to pray and, and ask God to give you self-control. You cannot entertain sinful thoughts. Going back to Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, if it's not true, you have no business thinking it. If it's not noble, you have no business entertaining that thought in your mind. If it's not excellent, if it's not worthy of praise, then you must reject that thought. Your mind is not a garbage dump. It's a temple. Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not guns, tanks, they're not knives. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The old adage is true, sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a destiny. Galatians says, do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, this shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you shall of the flesh reap destruction. But if you sow to the Spirit, you shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. These are the secrets, my friend, to gaining power over sin. Whatever a man sows, this shall he also reap. You know, the Bible said that 2,000 years ago. It wasn't until our day that we realized that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. If you push enough hot air through a jet engine going one way, the plane will go the opposite way. And God warned us, whatever you sow, you shall reap. Next step, walk with wise men. Proverbs 13.20 He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. One of the biggest killers of spiritual growth is the television set. The vast majority of the stuff that spews out of that thing is poison. And I'm not talking about legalism. I'm talking about holiness. The I've read a statistic recently that said the average Christian spends nine years in front of the TV and four months in church. And many never read their Bible from cover to cover. Well, 
If you walk with wise men, you become wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, God warns us again, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. The television set, the vast majority of the stuff that comes out of that thing is bad company that corrupts good morals. It appeals to the lust, to greed, and pride. In Proverbs 12.26, it says, The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Friend, if your television time is more than your Bible time, then your television set is an idol. And an idol is an abomination to God. Idolatry is rival worship. And whatever you like to spend your free time on most, that is your God. I love a quote that I found from Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley. She said, would you judge the lawfulness of the pleasure of a pleasure? Take this rule. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your vision of God, or takes away the relish of spiritual things, or increases the authority of your body over your mind, to you that is sin. The Bible says whatever is not of faith is sin. I would encourage you, flee from these things, O man of God. Be done with lesser things. You are not the product of a broken home, a devastated economy, a world in the upheaval of war, a minority group, a family of drunkards, or a poverty-ridden neighborhood, or whatever other excuse you might find, you are the product of your own thinking process. And whatever you are thinking about today is the cornerstone of your tomorrow. You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. We are what we are, and we are where we are because of what we have allowed to go into our minds. We change what we are, and we change where we are by changing what goes into your mind. We are called, according to Romans 12.1, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? You fill it with the word of God. As the psalmist said again, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I would encourage you to go back over this message and make notes of all the scripture verses that I have mentioned. There are dozens more. I think of the verse in Isaiah where it says, He will keep thee in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. 
Keep your mind set on things above, not on things below. And the God of peace will be with you. Father, I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to rest upon the listeners of this message. O oh God, give us the power that we need. Give us the grace that we need, the measure of grace that we need to walk in the light, to walk in the truth, to walk in a manner that is pleasing in your sight. Help us, O oh God, to take up the shield of faith with which we can extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And help us, Lord God, to know what it means to take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, in order to be able to do battle against the enemies of heaven and against the souls of men. I pray this in Jesus' mighty and matchless name. So be it. Amen.